We thank you and praise you because of your goodness in providing for us. Lord, we so often think of our earthly wealth or poverty or whatever our condition may be when it comes to tithes and offerings. But Lord, help us to see beyond that. Help us to see the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. That what awaits for us is a security that we so easily tie to our satisfaction, our happiness, even our identity here in this world, that we have a security in Christ and the glorious riches that are ours in Him that supersedes all of that, that makes all of this fade in comparison. Lord, may that transform then how we live our lives and how we steward the resources that you've given us. Cause us to be cheerful givers, Lord. May we live that way. But Lord, may we never forget that our identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. So make this true in our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and ask that you would feed us and nourish us and instruct us with your word. Cause us to hear and understand. Lord, we can sit and listen. We could be most diligent and disciplined and trying to hear words, but unless your spirit works in our hearts and lives, it's for naught. This is not a, an act we can accomplish on our own. We need your spirit's work in us, and so we pray to that end. Have your way in us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The city of Smyrna was uh, located... or was, is located on the Aegean Sea. If you look on a modern-day map of the Mediterranean, where the Aegean goes north, you see Athens, Greece. If you look immediately east of Athens, you'll see the city of Izmir, Turkey. Izmir, Turkey is where Smyrna used to be, or was Smyrna. This is one of the few cities that still exists from these seven cities in Asia uh, it's been renamed to Izmir. It rises up out of the Aegean Sea in typical Mediterranean fashion. It's beautiful. Uh, mountains that uh, rise up with bright, luscious green and rocks that are outcropped on the mountains. You may remember a few years ago, a Presbyterian minister by the name of Andrew Brunson, who was a pastor in Turkey, who was arrested during a crackdown by the government. Many of you followed that story and prayed for his release. That was an almost two-year ordeal where he uh, was imprisoned there. He is a teaching elder in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the EPC. It's a denomination that we have fraternal relations with. Uh, he had been there serving since the mid-90s. 
Brunson was the pastor of a church in Izmir, Izmir, Turkey, where Smyrna was, or formerly, formerly known as Smyrna. The city in its ancient state was not only set in this beautiful context of the Mediterranean mountains that rise up out of the Mediterranean, but it was beautiful in its architecture as well. There was a certain structure to the buildings, that uh, a certain symmetry that uh, conveyed the idea of a crown. And it became known as the crown of Smyrna. When people would visit, it was something that stood out. The name Smyrna is from the Greek word for myrrh. You may remember myrrh was one of the gifts that was brought to Jesus at his birth by the wise men. Myrrh is a gum, aromatic, smells, uh, spice, if you will, that is found in trees there that are uh, readily available in this area of Turkey. But not only was it known as the gift that was brought to Jesus, you may remember it was also uh, brought at his death as well. Nicodemus in John 19.39 brought spices, including myrrh, uh, to use for embalming. And this is what myrrh was most known as. Uh, It was used for embalming. So it had this connection then to the idea of death. So when Jesus speaks to the church at Smyrna and identifies himself as he who died and came to life and spoke to them of being faithful to death as well as not being hurt by the second death, when he mentions the crown of life to them, all of this imagery, this wasn't random. This was especially meaningful to these believers there in Smyrna. Another point of interest in the history of Smyrna is the, uh, uh, the bishop of Smyrna, just a few years after the writing of this letter, was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, so he studied as a very young man under John. He would go on later to become, he may have been the pastor of the church at this time, later raised to the, the position of bishop, which would have overseen multiple churches, but located here in this church in Smyrna. Polycarp would later suffer persecution, fitting very closely with the description that is given here in Revelation 2. And not only would he suffer, he would remain faithful unto his death as he was burned at the stake on February 23rd, 155 A.D. And so this message that Jesus gives to the church at Smyrna, although it's the shortest of all seven messages, was timely and relevant. It was exactly what they needed to hear as they faced not only the persecution that they were already enduring, but the certain increase of persecution that they would certainly encounter. And so beginning in verse 8, we see Jesus instruct his message to the angel of the church and identifies himself there as the first and the last who died and came to life. We're familiar with these titles because we saw similar versions of them appear in chapter 1. The idea of first and last, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, right? That, that Jesus is sovereign over all of history, which was of great comfort to people who are suffering. I mean, if you think about it, I know our suffering and persecution and things that we face in our own context pales in comparison to what many have suffered for the name of Christ. But even with all that we have seen and experienced in our own lifetimes, we still recognize that were it not for the sovereignty of God, uh, we would have a lot to fear about. If we didn't know that God was in control even over these things, it would cause great concern, even dread 
So this is a, a comfort to them to hear Jesus say, I am the first and the last. Not only that, he says, I am the one who was dead and now is alive. He reminds them of his defeat of sin and death and his own subsequent, uh, or his own sacrifice and resurrection. And so the church in Smyrna, these were words that they needed that brought true comfort and really hope that is beyond what we can experience in this life. A hope that points to the life after. Jesus' words to the congregation were not only brief, but this is one of only two of the messages that doesn't include a rebuke or correction. Did you notice that? I mentioned four components that are in most of the letters last week, and one of those components was a rebuke or correction. Last week's was, you have lost your first love, right? Here, there is no rebuke or correction. What's interesting is of the two churches that don't receive that rebuke, the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia, both of these churches, something that they share in common in their address is Satan is described as leading the synagogues of the Jews to blaspheme the name of Christ. It isn't that Satan was any less at work in any of the other cities. We know how Satan works. He is an equal opportunity deceiver. But he was in particular way working in the city of Smyrna and in the city of Philadelphia, and the fruit of his intense persecution leading and working even through the Jews there led to the people in Smyrna not losing their first love. In other words, persecution has this way of refining us, of enabling us to to remain true, to remain faithful as we're called, steadfast. Simon Kistemacher points out, truly in the darkest places, the light shines the brightest. In verse 9, Jesus begins his message with, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. Once again, we're reminded of the one who walks among the lampstands, who holds the seven stars in his hands, that Jesus isn't far off, but he is near. He knows. He says, I know what you're facing. And while this message is specifically addressed to the church at Smyrna, he says that to us today as well. He is no less omniscient of what we're facing. He is no less present in our midst. He, he walks among the lampstand of Christ the King Presbyterian. He knows what we're facing. And that's true corporately, but it's also true individually. Everything that we're enduring. Tribulation is the experience of hardship under pressure. There's a, in, in the word, there's a connotation of being under pressure or with a weight on you. And we understand this, that you know, that, that tribulation is kind of next level suffering. It's often, uh, from unjust oppression, which adds another layer to the suffering itself. When you recognize that what is happening is not only bad, but it's not fair. It's not right. These hardships for the believers there came in many forms, but one of them was the loss of work among the Christians there. This was due mainly to the fact that the Christians would not participate in the Roman emperor worship. We've talked about this a little bit where uh, the Roman emperors, as they grew in power, turned into this uh, where they were viewed in a godlike fashion and uh, Caesar is Lord, that kind of thing, wanting people to proclaim that and, of course, give money and uh, burning incense, temples were erected and so forth. Christians couldn't participate in this. And as a result, they would lose work. They couldn't hold jobs. And not only would they lose their jobs, but ultimately in what we see in history, including in the city of Smyrna, is that it would often lead to imprisonment 
and for some even martyrdom. In other words, the tribulation wasn't just a hard life. It was a matter of life and death. The loss of work for the Christians uh, did contribute to their earthly poverty. It certainly uh, uh, made life difficult. But don't misunderstand this as they just didn't have the extras to go do the fun things. A lot of times when we think of, um, I mean, you know, we've probably all been in our uh, a number of circles through our life. Maybe you've uh, had times of plenty and times of want. But typically when we speak of I'm poor or I'm not, it just means we weren't able to go to Disney last year or something. Like our, it's, it's all about context. I mean, it really isn't like we're looking to put food on our table. We're looking to find clean water. We're looking to find something to cover up with because we're cold, Right? But this was the context of these believers in Smyrna. It was a debilitating poverty when it, wherein they were unable to provide for their fundamental necessities. They couldn't take care of their families. The, the Romans uh, required this emperor, em, emperor worship, and the Jews were excused from it. Uh, the Jews were traitors. They, they were they, they traitors, not traitors. Traders. They were involved in trade. And they used the power that they had through that means to negotiate with the Roman government where they didn't have to participate in that. And early on, the Romans didn't distinguish between Christianity and Judaism. Since Christianity emerged from Judaism, they looked at both the same. But very quickly over time, there was a distinguishing. And rather than the Jews using the protection they enjoyed to help others fight against religious persecution... They instead fueled the, the, the division. They added to it. They made their predicament even worse, and it was going to get worse. And so Jesus, in the midst of this statement of, I know your situation, interjects in verse 9, but you are rich, to remind the believers of their true reality. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James writes that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Now, don't misunderstand to think that the believers in Smyrna were in the kingdom because they were poor. It was rather that they had sacrificed earthly prosperity because of their love for and allegiance to Christ. No one's saved because they're poor. And yet, being saved might require us to lose. If you've ever traveled to another country, you've witnessed believers who have very little, possibly, and the joy that they have. I've experienced that. I've heard many testimonies where people are kind of just overcome by that. It is a very powerful thing to go and witness believers in other contexts who have very, very little and yet have a joy that would put ours to shame. But it isn't poverty that saves us. But are we willing to enter poverty because of our love for and allegiance to Christ? That's the question. Are we willing to endure losing it all, so to speak, for the sake of obeying Jesus? Jesus says that in that context, you're still rich. You still will receive the immeasurable riches of God's grace in Jesus. You will possess the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a paradox of the gospel. One in which it's hope-filled as we face affliction. 
But it's especially true for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for the name of Christ, who suffer for their faith. We are rich in Christ. This is a gift of His grace to us, the one who, though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. The third affliction Jesus mentions is this slander that they're suffering at the hands of the local Jews in Smyrna. Jesus has very strong words for them. He says, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jews had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. 2 Corinthians 4.4 points out that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan is a lion on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour. And in Smyrna, he was working not only through the Romans and their persecution of the Jews, he was working through, or persecution of the Christians, he was working through the Jews in their slander of the Christians, which added to that. Jewish persecution of Christians in the early days grew, as I mentioned, partly because of the fact that, that, that Christianity was an offshoot of Judaism. And so in the Roman mind, they didn't distinguish. They weren't interested in theological debates. They just saw that you know Christians hung in kind of the same circles. But over time, that protection that the Jewish people enjoyed, that the Christians initially did, uh, faded and Scripture tells us that this was fueled by jealousy. That the Jews were jealous and would slander. Now, we don't have time to go into this, but Paul deals with some of that in Romans, of the desire to make the Jews jealous, to, to see their need for the Messiah, to see that Jesus was the Messiah. But let me just mention a couple passages from Acts. If you remember our study in Acts, you may remember these. Acts thirteen forty five. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Acts 14, But when the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, this is the apostles, and to stone them, and learning of it, they fled. One more, Acts 17, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. Let me be clear about this. This is not to disparage one group of people over another. The Jews slandered the Christians, but the Romans certainly carried out the bulk of the persecution. But you understand, the Jews had been chosen by God. They had been set apart to receive the law, the prophets. The Messiah came as a Jew. But they were never saved, are not now saved, and will not be saved in the future because of their Jewishness. Judaism doesn't save. Salvation has always been by grace, through faith. And one of the evidences of this is the fact that in the Old Testament we see the remnant. You remember these passages? There, I did a study on this this week. It's way more than I remembered. This pointing out of the remnant within Judaism. It's, it's throughout Isaiah, Ezra, Micah, Jeremiah. Most of the prophets use this language, and not just once or twice, but over and over again. If the people of God, the, the, the Jews, were God's children in a saving manner, then the remnant would have been meaningless. 
the remnant pointed to those who possessed saving faith, those who were truly trusting God. They weren't looking to their ethnicity or to their religion, but they were looking to the one who would who had promised to save them, the one who made them, the one who called them. No one is saved based on their genealogy, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So when anyone denies the person and work of Christ, as the Jews in Smyrna were doing, they are those who have been blinded by Satan to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, one more warning. Please don't allow this to lead you into any anti-Semitic thought pattern. While Jews are not saved according to their ethnicity, Christians, I would argue, should have a burden for their Jewish friends and neighbors. We should have a desire to see them come to saving faith. Quite the opposite of those who have called them Christ killers with hatred in their hearts. True followers of Christ ought to yearn to see Jews come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Talk to your Jewish loved ones. Talk to them about their need for atonement. That's something they understand. They understand the idea of atonement. Ask them, how are your sins atoned for? There's no temple. There's no temple worship. Where's the blood? Without the remission, or without the, the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. How, what, what, who's dealing with your sins right now? They'll have answers. The rabbis have given them answers, but they don't satisfy. Take them to Isaiah 53. Encourage them to read what the rabbis have called the forbidden chapter. Why? Because it points so clearly to the person and work of Christ. Pray for Jews to come to saving faith in Yeshua. But know that the reason that they need to be saved is the same as anyone and everyone. They need to be saved from their sins. And only those who trust in Jesus are the true sons and daughters of Abraham according to Romans 2.28, according to Galatians 3.26. There we read, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Dennis Johnson writes, The people of God are defined Christocentrically, not genealogically. So understanding all of this then, we can then understand why the words of Jesus were so harsh about the Jews. It isn't that they were worse than the Romans. They weren't. We know that but it was that they claimed to be the people of God and were not. They claimed to be the people of God and rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the one the Father had sent to save them from their sins. And they continued to reject Jesus as the Messiah as they persecuted Christians with their slander, with their false accusations. The same evil one who was deceiving the Jews was also at work among the Romans. We see this in verse 10. As a result, some of the Christians there are going to be incarcerated. Jesus begins, though, before telling them this with do not fear. That, that, that command that we see over and over in Scripture, that command that we should never tire of hearing because we are so easily and so quickly filled with fear and anxiety, we need to hear those words, do not fear. He then tells them that they'll suffer. You're going to have tribulation. It's going to get hard. It won't be fair. It'll be painful. There's no sugarcoating what's coming, but there is purpose in the coming tribulation. He says that you may be tested. 
Now, don't misunderstand this as some kind of temptation. James tells us God tempts no one. This wasn't God saying that he was going to tempt them, but rather this was going to be a refinement. None of us like to be refined. We'd prefer just to, you know, get abs instantly with a pill or something like that. Uh, none of us like to, you know, go through the rigors of schoolwork. We'd just rather somebody give us an honorary doctorate or, or whatever. None of us want to go through the labors that would move us all up. We just would wish we were promoted. But we all have the ability to look back and see how the refining process, whether it's education or a work experience or the military or playing a sport, all tough, challenging, refining experiences work to lead us in strength, to give us strength. And spiritually, God uses the testing of our faith to produce in us steadfastness. James says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Even Satan's schemes to imprison the believers there in Smyrna is used by our sovereign God to accomplish his good purposes in our lives. Think about that. Imprisonment. Unjust imprisonment. The result of slander and persecution used by God for the believers, for His glory. This is hard. It's hard to hear this. It's hard to understand this. It's hard to believe it. But over and over again in Scripture and in history, we see that our God redeems our tribulations, our heartaches, our sicknesses, and our messes. Jesus came to give us a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that we may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah 61.3. That passage in Isaiah 61.3, verses 1 and 2, just a little context there. When Jesus announced his ministry uh, when at, at, at around the age of 30, when he announced he was entering into the ministry at the synagogue that morning, he quoted from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He didn't quote this far in, but that's, that's the context. What a sweet promise to give us uh, a headdress instead of ashes, to give us gladness instead of mourning, to make us, make us like oaks of righteousness for his glory. Not only does God give purpose to their tribulation, but it is also limited, we see. It won't last forever. He mentions ten days. This is almost certainly symbolic, as so many of the numbers in Revelation are. Ten conveys the idea of completion, that it will end, that it's not forever. There are some who understand that the ten to represent a series of persecution by ten different emperors. They weren't all consecutive, but there were, they, they count ten emperors where the persecution was particularly great for Christians during these ten emperors, and that's, that's plausible. But the message is the same either way, and that is our tribulation isn't eternal. It will not last forever. Our suffering will end. We have hope, and because of our hope in Christ, we are called to faithfulness, to steadfastness, stick to itness. Jesus said to them, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Don't lose sight of the hope that you have in Christ. Don't allow the present suffering to cloud your heart's vision of who has saved you and who holds you in his hand. This is so easy to do. Don't give in to the shooting pains from living in a fallen world, a broken and dying body. 
and a culture that slanders and persecutes you. Keep trusting the one who is promised and is faithful. Keep your eyes unflinchingly on him. And in the end, your reward will be eternal life, that crown of life where everything is made right as it should be. In verse 11, he adds, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The first death is one that we will all face unless Christ returns in our lifetime. This is not the death that we should fear. Kistemacher writes, The first death pertains to one's physical demise, the second death to being cut off from God forever. The saints may suffer physical death at the hand of persecutors, but they will never be separated from God. By contrast, unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire and suffer eternal death. This means they will experience not annihilation, but never-ending punishment. The comfort that this brought to the believers there in Smyrna is a comfort for us as well today. No tribulation in this life, no slander, no oppression, no poverty can destroy our future and our hope. All of these things are superintended by our sovereign God who uses them for our good and for His glory. Yes, it's painful. It's hard. It's hard to understand. Again, it's hard to believe at times. But be faithful and be faith-filled even unto death. These words of Jesus were not empty words. There's deep meaning in them, especially for the, the believers there in Smyrna to provide them with a sure hope. Polycarp, as I mentioned before, he may have been the pastor of the church at this time as a young man. He would later become the bishop of this church. And let me share with you what his experience was at the end of his life. The Roman proconsul had been, well, had commanded him to say, Caesar is Lord. But Polycarp refused. Brought to the stadium, the proconsul urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul again pressed him, the old man answered, Since you are vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And a little later, the proconsul answered, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast you, except if you repent. I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. But you're ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. Soon afterwards, the people began to gather wood, the Jews especially, according to the custom, eagerly assisting them. It's interesting to note, if we go back in the history books, this day was a Sabbath. And the Jews broke their own Sabbath in gathering firewood to contribute to the fire where Polycarp was burned at the stake. Faithful unto death, he did not recant or walk away from the one who had saved him. He trusted in him until he breathed his last. As difficult as a story as this is to hear, yet we know it has been experienced by believers throughout time. And around the world, many have suffered for the name of Christ, and some have even given their lives for his name. But they will not be harmed by the second death. 
Instead, they will overcome the judgment through faith in the one who has paid the price. It is by faith alone that we are saved. Faith alone that we are carried to the end. The faith itself not being meritorious, but it is the object of our faith, Jesus, the one who holds us in his hands. He became poor for our sake, that we might be rich in him. He laid down his life and shed his blood for our sins. And in the table that's before us today, we remember and we proclaim his death and resurrection. He is the first and the last who died and came to life. And because of his love in this, we will not be harmed in death. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the suffering that our brothers and sisters faced in Smyrna, and indeed, modern-day Izmir, probably even today, believers in Izmir are fearful. Lord, we thank you for the testimony that endures. Not just that they were faithful and trusted you, but your testimony, the testimony of Jesus, that you are faithful to us, that you preserve your people, that nothing can separate us from your love, that nothing can pluck us from your hand, that no tribulation or poverty or trial or sickness or anything that we can imagine can separate us from you, that you hold us firmly. Thank you for your testimony. Call us to continually trust you that we would be faith-filled until the end, even to death. And Lord, strengthen us to face whatever it is that awaits us, that we might endure it with a sense of joy that perplexes the world, a joy that is beyond understanding, because we know that in Christ we are held, in Christ are the glorious riches of the age to come, and in Christ is a sure hope. Lord, may our testimony reflect the testimony of our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.